Do you have ridiculously high standards and expectations for others as well as for yourself? Do you ever shy away from new encounters and experiences because you're afraid you might fail or look stupid? Do you often see things as either all right or all wrong? Have you ever sorted your socks by color? Categorized your books by the Library of Congress classification system? Or gotten up in the night to make sure the light switches all face the correct direction? If so, you might be a perfectionist. If you're a perfectionist like me, you have fellow travelers in Luther and in Paul. Luther wrote extensively about his own anxieties and despair and his inability to keep God's commandments. Paul, for his part, went the opposite direction, saying that he had been blameless under the law. Whether you're tempted to despair like Luther or to pride like Paul, one thing is certain, keeping God's law cannot save you or me. Fortunately for us, Luther and Paul wrote a great deal about what purpose God's law serves for the Christian. At Sunday school, my first call, I would often run through the commandments with the kids as part of our opening. Sometimes I would ask them, if you could keep all these commandments perfectly, would you get into heaven? The kids, who are well-versed in quid pro quo by this point, would say, yes! They would look shocked when I tell them, no. And you can't keep them perfectly either. Then one of them might say, then why bother? There's nothing in it for me. Why bother? A perpetual question. One that Luther and Paul and Christians of every age have had to address. If keeping God's commandments doesn't save me, and I can't even obey them properly to begin with, then why bother with commandments at all? Aren't Christians supposed to live by faith? Jesus died, after all, to save me from my sins. Why not live like I want to? Why not sin so that grace may abound, as Paul puts it? Lutherans have often referred to three uses of God's law, the civic use in which the law is used to keep order in secular society so we don't kill each other. The mirror use in which the law shows our, our sin, shows us our sin to drive us to Christ, to drive us to grace. And the guide use, where the law serves as a guide for how to live the Christian life. But what I'd like to talk about is much more basic than that. And is, in a sense, a combination of all three of these uses. The main point of the second table of the law, commandments 4 to 10, is to guide us into right relationship with our neighbors. One to three were about guiding us into right relationship with God. Four through ten are about right relationship with neighbor. To do that, though, means keeping our own impulses, desires, and appetites in check. Before we love our neighbor as ourselves, we need to protect our neighbor from ourselves. The fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, is a bridge between the first and second tables of the law. The first table, commandments one to three, like I've said, have to do with our relationship with God. As we move to the second table, two particular kinds of neighbors are singled out 
for special concern. Fathers and mothers. Why? Because no two people have as much influence over an emerging life as fathers and mothers do. Most of us, our first experience of God came through our fathers and mothers, for good or for ill. Luther, who didn't always get along with his own father, presses this point home in his large catechism. It must, therefore, and I'm quoting here, it must, therefore, be impressed on young people that they revere their parents as God's representatives, and to remember that, however lowly, poor, feeble, and eccentric they may be, they are still their mother and father, given by God. Of course, this doesn't mean that parents don't have responsibilities to their children. Luther writes a lot in the large catechism about responsibilities of parents to their children. The point is, is that imperfect, sinful human parents are still worthy of honor. Commandments 5, 6, 7, and 8 have to do with all of our neighbors. Whether the commandment is don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, or don't bear false witness, the point of them is the same. As I mentioned in the children's sermon, Hillel said, that which is hateful to you, don't do to someone else. Don't do anything to your neighbor that diminishes them, that marginalizes them, that disrespects, dishonors, or dehumanizes them. If any action we could take could cause suffering to our neighbors, we might want to rethink it. And of course, it isn't always so simple. There are always thorny ethical issues where we could justify someone else's suffering in the name of a greater good. The question we might want to ask ourselves in that case is, would we be willing to suffer the same in the name of that greater good? Are we willing to shoulder the same burden that we're all too happy to put on someone else's back? If we're willing to shoulder someone else's burden with them, or even better, to try and remove it from them, we'll be on a path to loving our neighbor. Luther takes the same tack. He does this super annoying thing in the small catechism where he takes these commandments, which are phrased in a negative way, don't do this, don't do that, and he reinterprets them as positive commandments. Do this, do that. For instance, not only are we not to murder, we are to, quote, help and support our neighbors in all of life's needs. Not only are we not to bear false witness against our neighbors, we are to defend them, speak well of them, and interpret everything they do in the best possible light. By the way, Luther had a really hard time with that one. Not murdering, stealing, committing adultery, or lying are simple enough to understand. They lay out clear boundaries. Don't do this. And they don't require any love of the neighbor. Doing something for the neighbor, bearing their burdens, requires love. It's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. It's the love of God. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't do for us. Jesus showed us how much God loves us by being born for us, living for us, and dying for us. Out of nothing but sheer love, Jesus destroys the powers of sin and death, the powers that hold us captive, opening the kingdom of heaven to you and to me. 
a kingdom that is given without our having to do anything to earn it. We don't have to do anything to earn it. There's no quid pro quo with God. There's no gaming the system with God. God saves without any effort on our part at all. But there is something that happens when we receive that gift. We're transformed. We receive transformation in the Holy Spirit. Not into people who are, on the one hand, perfectionistic rule followers, or, on the other hand, disregard God's law entirely, but as people who use the law rightly. People who are on the path of faith. People who are saved and empowered by grace, who strive to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. Not because there's anything in it for us, but because it's what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, came to show us the way, destroying the powers that would keep us from you. By your grace, empower us to love our neighbors as he loves us. Amen.